3: For tuning in, and welcome to the January 10, 2022 Queer Film Edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. Out front and out loud since 1974, striving each week to amplify the voices of the LGBTQIA2S communities. I'm Frances O'Brien in Los Angeles. On this outing, as we lock down again for COVID variations, Tonight we take yet another dive into the IMRU archive for great but lesser known queer films to stream. Starting with one pulled together and starring one of our favorite gay actors, Rupert Everett.
4: Oscar Wilde once said, to live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people exist, that is all. And the latter years of his life are examined in an earnest new film.
5: My name is Rupert Everett. My film is called The Happy Prince, and it's about the life of Oscar Wilde in exile. This film came about, really, because I think in about 2005 or 2006, my career had kind of come to a standstill, and I couldn't face it. And so I thought I must try and write myself a role that maybe I could uh, play and get my career back on track. And I suppose this felt like the obvious subject to deal with or to try and write about. I I suppose, uh, you know, having embarked on a career in show business and being gay, you can't fail to look at other gay people in show business and see how they fare. And in that sense, Wilde is a kind of patron saint or a Christ figure, actually, for me. And so it seemed like the type of story that I could put everything into, somehow. It was definitely a a hard film to finance. It really is a European film. It's made out of Germany, from the Bavarian Film Fund, out of Belgium, a little bit out of England, a little bit out of Italy, and a bit of equity. And that's how the whole thing came together. It's a juggling act, making those kind of movies, because you manage to get a piece of money from say, Bavaria in January 2017. But that money only lasts for a year. And if you haven't got all the other bits of money from your or the Belgian Film Fund or the Italian rye, if they haven't come in within that year, so the you have juggling it together is a pretty complicated thing too.
4: Did anyone ever say I love your screenplay about Oscar Wilde, but does the character have to be gay?
5: no one did that yet.
4: (laughs) You were one of the first film stars to be always out and open about your sexuality.
5: I didn't really have any choice. I liked going out to clubs and uh, dancing and stuff like that so there's no possibility even if I'd wanted to of living one of those cloistered gay lives where you just lived inside four walls and ordered in and continued with a show business career. For me, that wasn't how I saw the whole game, really. Uh, I saw it more about trying to express yourself somewhere. So I don't regret it. It's definitely been difficult, but I think all actors probably have something they feel has been very tough for them or difficult to overcome.
4: In your book, Hello, Darling, I'm Working, you reveal not only your sexuality, but Your days as a rent boy in Paris. It would be difficult to stay closeted after that.
5: Right, exactly. There was no possibility ever for me to hide, really, because I was always out and about on the gay scene. So it wasn't really a a choice or any lofty type of choice that I made or sacrificial choice. It was just that's how there was no possibility of me being anything else, really.
4: Did it dampen your chances of being a bigger star?
5: Yes, I think the problem mostly is at the very beginning when I did Another Country, my first film, remember the reactions you shouldn't play a gay role, it's very, very bad. You won't get any more jobs after playing a gay role. And I did get one more job, really good one, which is my next film, Dance with a Stranger. But after that, no, I didn't get any other jobs. And then, uh, you know, my comeback really, uh, I got a few jobs and I, and I developed a career in Italy, uh, which is what eventually led me to making Cemetery Man because they didn't really, I, I, I made a, a film with Francesco Rosi and another one, uh, I made four or five films there and I, I thought I should move to Europe and try and become a European actor and maybe that would be a little bit more forgiving or more understanding of being someone like me. And in one sense that was true, And then I managed to get back a little bit in Hollywood when I did My Best Friend's Wedding. And then I became really just famous for being gay, which is a difficult thing probably for an actor. But again, and the trouble with that was, at that point, uh, it became a commercial thing. And then all the straights wanted to play gay roles. And then once the straights wanted to play the gay roles, then the gays were out of the gay roles too, to a certain extent. And now it's not reciprocated. The gays can't play the straight roles
4: no gay person gets an award for playing a straight character but flip the script and the academy pays sudden attention
5: yeah straight away full penetration that's the difficulty of the situation
4: what was your biggest surprise about oscar wilde
5: i felt weirdly about oscar wilde always that i just knew him so i didn't find there were any surprises much i think the one thing that surprised me about him but it didn't really because i think One of the things I love about him is he's quite a selfish person. This other guy went to court with him, the guy who ran the brothel. And he was a very nice guy, actually, because he was offered immunity if he shopped Oscar, and he didn't. And so he had two years of hard labour as well. But never once is there any mention of him by any of them afterwards, which I think is such an extraordinary thing, because he, he did a really amazingly heroic thing in standing beside Oscar. Oscar's never mentioned him afterwards. That's the thing that slightly surprised me, this propensity that he has for selfishness. But I knew he was a selfish person. Thing is, I like him for all those things. I like him for the vanity, for the fact that he was such a big star that he thought the whole world, you know, was kind of uh, orbiting around him, which was how he made his, you know, initial major blunder. I love all those things about him, but that's, I suppose, because I come from an era before political correctness where a hero could have been still someone who was incredibly flawed. So all those things are things I love.
4: Ahim Rayu is also doing a piece on a Pasadena production of Oscar Wilde's Portrait of Dorian Gray that portrays the protagonist as homosexual.
5: Dorian Gray has always been a gay character. That's the whole point of when, uh, at the very beginning, Lord Henry Wotton is talking to him as he's having his portrait painted, and he reads him, and he says, "You've had dreams uh, that would make you blush, and you should fulfil them. Uh, you should, uh, you shouldn't hide them and closet them. You should uh, fulfil them, go and do it."
4: What do you hope audiences take away from the film?
5: I always feel uneasy when you listen to directors and people talking about the message they want to give people, because. Really, the only reason I, I made the film was to celebrate my own fascination and affection and how important Oscar's been in my life and um, has comforted me somehow in my life at various times. And I feel that all I can hope really is that my passion and affection and fascination manages to leap through the footlights and into the hearts of the spectator. I don't know whether I could ask for more than that.
4: I don't mean to pry, but since you were both the star and the director of The Happy Prince, did you have to sleep with yourself to get the role?
5: Endlessly, yeah. And I'm suing.
4: <laughs> this has been a conversation with writer-director Rupert Everett about his film, The Happy Prince, and look at
3: the final years of Oscar Wilde. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. The Happy Prince can be rented to stream on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, or Vudu. If hot young boys at an English boarding school are your cup of Earl Grey, then you need look no further than 2006's The History Boys.
6: In the timetable, our esteemed headmaster has given these periods the dubious title of General Studies. I will let you into a little secret, boys. There is no such thing as General Studies. General Studies is a waste of time. Knowledge is not general. It is specific.
4: Taking place in a British high school, or grammar school, as it's called in the UK, the History Boys tells the story of a group of eight boys prepping for the university entrance exam in the early 1980s. While an ensemble piece, at its core, it's the story of young, gay, and Jewish Posner, class stud Duncan, with whom Posner is not so secretly in love, and two very different teachers. There's Hector, the ancient yet charismatic general studies teacher, who they idolize even though he gropes their crotches when he gives them rides on his motorcycle. And there's Erwin, a young gay teacher hired to show the boys techniques that will grab the examiner's attention. One of the most striking things about the History Boys is the casual acceptance of sexuality by the students and the faculty. Out gay director Nicholas Hintner explains.
7: Yeah, I have to say that was my experience, and it might have been exceptional. I was at school in the 70s, and I think that was because the pressure was to be cool, the pressure was not to be bigoted. And I was at a school very similar to this school. But I don't think that this is in any sense supposed to be a representative slice of reality. That's not the kind of film it is, not not the kind of play it was. It's very much... The expression of, of a particular playwrights, it's the way he has chosen to explore certain notions about what education should be for, what history is about.
8: How do you define history, Mr. Raj? It's just one bloody thing after another.
7: <laughs> Hit that boy! Hit it! Now, I did have the experience of being taught by a Hector who had none of his bad points, only his good points. And we were completely besotted by the things that he was besotted by his range of reference, his cultural enthusiasms, became ours. And I think that's what the film imagines. It would be nonsense to say that in a typical English classroom in the 1980s, a boy would be standing up and singing. But with this particular teacher, he does, because it's what this particular teacher has made these kids excited about. Actor Richard Griffins is amazing as the
4: older teacher. In fact, he won the Tony last year for his portrayal of Hector on Broadway. But he recently got into hot water when he was quoted as saying he didn't understand homosexuality. But the heterosexual actor has often played gay roles and told me the press got it wrong.
6: That's yet another embanglement of something I was saying about Mr. Hector. I never said I don't understand homosexuality. Well, in a way I don't because I've never quite. But with Hector, I couldn't see the point if you, grop, if you travel 50 miles an hour on a motorbike and you're wearing oxide gauntlets up to your elbows and you reach to the person, your passenger, A, is there sufficient sensitivity left in your hands to actually identify that there is a person there? B, if you touch them, how would you know what you're touching? I don't get what the turn-on is. Where is the gratification? Do you see... And that became, I can't understand homosexuals because I don't understand how they get gratification. That's just garbage, isn't it? All I was saying was that I don't see where Hector's gratification was. There was no sexual contact. There has to be skin-on-skin contact somewhere, I would have thought, for anybody to derive any sexual pleasure from any situation on earth. I can understand the interposition of a very thin membrane of rubber, that speaks to me, but not oxide.
4: Actor Samuel Barnett, who plays the youngest
6: of the history boys,
4: Hosner, explains why the boys tolerate Hector's wandering hands.
8: It's not acceptable. It's it's indefensible and inappropriate and it's abusive, but they're not like a normal group of boys. They've been through school, they're at a completely different level trying for Oxford and Cambridge, and it's like they're on a sort of higher plane. They see it as a rite of passage, this thing with Hector they hero worship him and adore him. In fact, Posner is the only one who really wants to go on the bike and he doesn't get to go on because he's too young sexually and emotionally, so Hector doesn't touch him. But I think it's more like a rites of passage, something that the boys just deal with. It's not so abusive that it screws them up. And in fact, the one person it could really affect, Posner, never gets to go on the back of the bike anyway.
4: Posner is enamored of the obvious charms of his straight school chum, Dankin. And although he doesn't return Posner's attention, when it comes to Irwin, the new teacher, Dankin is straight, but perhaps not that narrow.
2: Would you do it with him? Yeah, I wondered about that. I might. Bring a little bit of sunshine into his life.
9: It's only a wank after all. i makes you think he'd
5: do it with you?
4: This leads to one of the more surprising twists in the plot, but Dominic Cooper, who
2: plays Dankin, says it's a twist that makes perfect sense. He's an 18-year-old who is extraordinarily sure of himself and knows how to get what he wants. He finds this character of Irwin, this new teacher that comes along, kind of fascinating. And he can't get that teacher's attention or attract that teacher via his academia because he's not clever enough. He will never be as bright as Erwin. He understands that Irwin is attracted to him and he manipulates that situation and that was difficult to play because you don't want him being nasty he he can very easily come across as someone that puts that teacher in the corner and manipulates him and and, and does it for his own benefit when really what he's trying to do and, and what he can't understand he can't understand that this fascinating kind of outgoing outspoken wonderful teacher is so kind of inward and can't let himself go or live his life. So it's actually a very positive thing. And I think because he's such a confident guy, Dakin, he just can't understand why this guy won't live his life in the same way that he lives his life through his academic teaching.
4: Watching the History Boys, I wished I had gone to a high school in England where they sing show tunes when they're not quoting poetry or dialogue from Betty Davis movies. But according to Samuel Barnett, who sings several songs to his classmates in the film, I would be disappointed. In the same
8: way that they accept Posner getting up and singing a song, they also accept the way they speak to one another, and they also accept Posner's sexuality, and they accept Hector, and it's not how it is in reality, I don't think. I'll sing to him. Each spring to him, and worship the trousers
3: that cling to him. The History Boys can be rented to stream on YouTube, Google Play, Apple TV, or Vudu. When Steve did the interviews for this feature in 2006, one of his notes was, The fat, sweaty boy is full of himself, but said nothing of interest. Flash forward to 2022, and we can only wonder what became of James Corden. And you can't get much further away in tone and location than the year 2000's Malibu mystery, Psycho Beach Party.
4: It's Malibu, California, 1962. We're hanging ten with hip cats and groovy chicks. The sun is bright, the waves are high, and the killer is turning our cool scene into one psycho beach party. But no fear, Daddy-O, Detective Monica Stark is on the case. Fellas, do, please,
10: sit down. I want to talk to you about the murders that have been taking place. I'm concerned that one of you could be the killer's next target. Why us? Well, so far, the killer's gone after a girl with a hair lip, a young lady in a wheelchair, a boy with psoriasis, and another with one testicle. Is there anything about you that the killer could possibly perceive as freakish? Come now, face up. Everyone has something they'd rather hide. Ooh. Hello, I'm Charles Bush. I first came up with the notion of this place, Psycho Beach Party, I guess in around 1986. I had a little theater company in New York at the time, we called ourselves Theater in Limbo because we performed in a place called the Limbo Lounge way down into the depths of the East Village. Well, after each performance, I would do a, a curtain speech to get people to sign our mailing list, and I would uh, try to you know make it into something of a comedy routine. One thing I did was I would just invent on the spot titles of future plays we, we might do, and one night I said, and we'll do Gidget Goes Psychotic, and I got a very nice laugh, so I kept that as kind of my punchline, for a long time and eventually we thought you know we've been publicizing this show we ought to do one called Gidget Go Psychotic and uh eventually you know we I wrote it we did it and we uh later called it Psycho Beach Party and it ran in New York for about oh I think about almost a year about 10 months and it's been done thank God all over just about every state of the United States, and and Berlin. Was Charles Bush born a genius, or is all this the product of permissive parenting? I am totally the product of a completely permissive childhood. But, uh, you know, my family was so traumatized early on. My mother died when I was seven, and my father is a bit of a free spirit, not the most responsible person, but a lot lot of fun. He loves old movies, so when I was growing up, I uh, just would watch... The late show with him and by the time I was 10 I guess I had seen you know just a huge catalog of M. Jim Warner Brothers films. It was no wonder why eventually I was flunking out of school I was so exhausted.
4: While in the film version of Psycho Beach Party Charles Bush plays a fantabulous flatfoot. In the original play he created the role of the mentally unbalanced ingenue, Chicklet
10: tell you the truth, it was never really one of my favorite parts to play. And in fact, the character uh, has split personalities. And one reason I did that, actually, was because I didn't really want to just play this sort of young teenage girl. And I thought if, if her alter ego was more of a femme fatale, it would be more in keeping with my comic persona. So I, I, I was never that sentimental about it. And when the producers of the movie uh, wanted to make it, there was really no question that we, I kind of always thought it would be a real girl. You know, a film is just more naturalistic to start you know you're on real locations on a real beach and it seems like I it was a bit of a stretch having me at this point in my life even if, if I'm the wrong gender to uh to play this young teenage girl I mean it really takes it to highly stylized place instead though I, you know since I'm also the screenwriter you know <laughs> I wrote myself a fabulous new, new part which wasn't in the original play the um movie is more of a thriller kind of a a little bit like a 70s slasher movie at times. So if you have a killer, you need a sleuth. So I wrote the new part of Captain Monica Stark, LAPD. And I'm kind of the detective um, who's a bit of a cross between uh, Joan Crawford and um, Susan Hayward, I'd say. What, having second thoughts? It's just that, well, I'm taking the detective's exam next month. Shouldn't you be thinking about having babies? A baby? You've got to be kidding. My career is just building. I'm gonna show those bastards who said a woman couldn't be a detective. And where do I fit in,
0: honey?
10: Fit just fine. Stop
11: it. I'm not your whore. Don't talk that way. This isn't what I want.
1: None of it.
10: Come back, darling. All the success in the world means nothing unless you're beside me. I need you.
1: Of course, behind
4: every leading lady, there's a dreamboat called her leading man. I was
10: thrilled when they told me that Thomas Gibson was interested in the part. I, I was thrilled because, you know, Thomas Gibson, I, I think he's a wonderful actor, and it's, it's tricky material to play, you know, it's a parody, at the same time it requires a certain amount of sincerity, it's a, a red, the rather original style, and then to do it on film makes it even more difficult. I, I thought we really needed experienced actors, and, and it doesn't uh, hurt that he's just uh, wildly attractive. Uh, uh, keep it going,
0: bud. Uh, uh, pick up uh, the speed uh, Hot
6: uh, uh, yeah. back. Uh, now run the light.
10: Yeah. In the movie of Psycho Beach Party, I've this sex scene with Thomas Gibson and I was so looking forward to it, I thought and yet I'd always heard that uh from different actresses, you know, I read in Premiere Magazine or whatever how, how gruesome and awful it is having to lie in bed with Brad Pitt or Harrison Ford for all those hours shooting it. But I, I was willing to uh take a stab at it but when we shot the scene after uh, just when the going was going good i stepped out and i had a body double because it's sort of amusing where suddenly you see you see this woman's uh, breasts so i i stepped out and then actually what happened then is that thomas gibson uh, had to leave by midnight and so he left and uh, the director's uh, lover happened to be just watching, and next thing you know, he had Thomas Gibson's costume on, and he was lying there with this nude woman right in his face. Here, here, my big sex scene, and neither of us were there.
4: I asked Charles if all this murder has a moral.
10: You know, I I don't like being pretentious, because it really is a a very campy, outrageous kind of spoof of... Frankie and Ned and also Hitchcock's suspense films. However, when I was doing the play in 87, it did occur to me that it actually was rather personal. I think that the story of a young girl who feels so fragmented that she's split personalities, I don't think it's that far a stretch to see it as a metaphor for most of us. I I think, particularly when we're very young, feel that we're a different person with our families, a different person with our lovers, a different person with our friends. And I know for myself when I was very young, that was a real issue for me to feel that I was this kind of coalesced personality and, you know, who am I? How do I fit into the world? Which is, I think, we all struggle, I'd say. And uh, so the the play, in a way, is is about that. Uh, When you deal with camp and movie parody, the assumption is kind of that you don't have a brain or a concern in your head. And I've always thought that my plays, no matter how, how frivolous they may seem, that there was something behind them an emotion to hold on to grasp onto otherwise it just
4: kind of flies away doris day said whatever will be will be but what does charles bush think the future holds i'm having a very exciting year uh, to to
10: get back to my my great career because not only is the Psycho Beach Party opening as a movie, but I have a new play opening on Broadway at Ethel Barrymore Theater in, in October, which is so thrilling. Because I've actually, you know, I'm sort of the queen of Off Broadway, but never on Broadway. So I have a new play, The Tale of the Allergist's Wife, that I'm not in. That we have a wonderful cast: uh, Linda Lavin and Michelle Lee and Tony Roberts. Uh, so this will be the first of my plays on Broadway. But I've I've paid my dues, baby. <laughs>
4: This has been Steve Pride with Charles Bush, a hip chick and a groovy guy. Thanks for listening.
1: B-S-Y-C-H-O Psycho B-S-Y-C-H-O Psycho There was a crazy beach party that was underway With lots of rockin' teenagers from the USA
3: Psycho Beach Party can be streamed on Amazon Prime or rented to stream on YouTube, Google Play, Apple TV, or Vudu. We'll be right back with more fun flicks after this quick break. Don't go away.
11: Michael Bennett, dancer and choreographer. Coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. When Michael Bennett was 16, he attended a performance of West Side Story. That was it. He dropped out of school to join the touring company and began his career as a dancer. Debuting on Broadway in 1961, he had an even greater talent for choreography. Bennett was the brainchild of the Broadway hit A Chorus Line. Rather than commissioning a script, he interviewed scores of real-life dancers and threaded their experiences together for the storyline. A credit to Bennett's wizardry on stage, the award-winning show had a record run of 15 years at the Schubert Theater. He met similar success in 1981 with Dreamgirls. Bennett had relationships with both sexes, but those with men were less publicized. He died at 44, leaving a large portion of his estate to funding AIDS research. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, John DeBoer.
1: This is David Dean Botrell, and you are listening to I M R U. Am
3: Welcome back. I'm Frances O'Brien, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. And now, going back across the pond and even dipping our toes into 1998 was Love is the Devil.
4: Love is the Devil, a film by John Mayberry, stars Sir Derek Jacoby as controversial British artist Francis Bacon and Daniel Craig as his lover, George Dyer. It begins in 1971 in Paris. On the eve of Bacon's retrospective at the Grand Palace, where he was proclaimed the greatest living painter. As the ceremony takes place, George Dyer, Bacon's model and lover of seven years, recalls the fateful day in 1964 when Bacon caught him trying to rob his house.
6: And who might you be? Well, you're not much of a burglar, are you? Take your clothes off. Come to bed and you can have whatever you want.
4: A powerful and dangerous relationship begins between Bacon and Dyer. As Bacon's fame grows, Dyer becomes more and more self-destructive. It's been said that while George Dyer was a disaster for Bacon's personal happiness, he was the salvation of his art. For it was in the violent ambiguity of his feelings for Dyer that Bacon found a subject worthy of his anger.
6: I'd just like to make one picture that would annihilate all the rest. Eh? A violent fusion, all the past, all the present, concentrated into a single, raw, sliced open nerve. The portraiture of your pain.
9: No! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, the tenderness is so visible in every brushstroke. Well, the paintings of George are like exquisite love poems. That's the irony of the George pictures. I mean,
6: you seem to put more into the work than into the relationship itself. And ultimately, you suffer just as much. Ah, and as we know, Isabel, those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it.
4: Love is the Devil is not an easy film, but Francis Bacon was not an easy man.
9: Recently, I met with writer-director John Mayberry, who made it clear... It's not a biopic of Francis Bacon. It's actually about one relationship in Francis Bacon's life. It was the period from about 1963 to 71 when he was with his lover, George Dyer, who was the subject for my favorite paintings. That's why I focused on that story. Um, Those paintings had always kind of touched me and inspired me the most. And so, for me, it was interesting to kind of investigate the relationship between those two men and how it informs the work. And beyond that, sort of... I mean, what's interesting to me about the story is the sort of dynamic in their relationship. Sexually, Bacon was the masochist, Dyer was the sadist. Um, But psychologically, exactly the opposite is the case. And it's, it's that contradiction, really, that drives the narrative in the film. Fact is stranger than fiction, and Mayberry assured me that some of the odder moments in the film are based on fact. The funny thing is, although you know the film is a fictional drama, um, no one can know what went on in private between those two men. But it is all based on real events and real, you know, when Bacon's putting boot polish in his hair and and brushing his teeth with um, scouring powder. I mean, he did do that. The guy was bizarre, to say the least. I mean, you know, this was, he was a millionaire. He was a very, very successful painter. His work sold for very good prices in the 50s, right through to, to his death in the um, early 90s. But he always, um, you know, money wasn't uh, his modus operandi. It's like he lived in that tiny little studio, which looked like a kind of dump, a squat or something. Um, but, you know, at the same time, he ate in the best restaurants. He, he traveled. He, had, he actually had apartments in different cities around the world, and he lived very well, but, he, you know, he wasn't a materialistic person. He'd kind of had his sort of swishy queen life in the 20s. He was an interior designer, a kind of bad rip-off artist of uh, like Eileen Gray or someone like that. And I think, it was, in a way, once he became a, a public, when he publicly became a painter in 1945, it was almost like a kind of a pose to be this sort of bohemian um, living the, the artist's lifestyle. John Maybury's *Love Is the
4: Devil* is a dark and disturbing vision that stands out from the current crop of gay
9: films. Despite the fact we've now been living in the shadow of AIDS for what 15, 20 years, 15 years at least, um, we're all meant to be bright, shiny, happy people, you know. And it's like uh, I don't buy into that. Um, It's—I mean, um, there are lots of bright, shiny, happy people. I've, you know, I've seen lots of the kind of. Muscle Mary steroid clones in the West Village here, looking very bright and shiny and polished, and but it's uh, that's not my reality. Um, and you know, th- each to his own. There's a place for those happy smiley films. And you know, my friend Rupert, you know, he was you know the, the token fag in my best friend's wedding, and you know, kind of it's it's interesting to see Rupert's career being reactivated by what well, I think is a pretty shabby film. Um, but, yeah, you know, good luck to him, and it's opening new doors for him, and, and there's a, there is a place for that kind of, you know, you know aren't queens funny? You know, aren't they amusing and witty? Don't they have great taste? Well, you know, those, all those clichés are in place because of the degree of truth in that, but I also think that the kind of homosexual artists from the past that interest me have a, a depth and a darkness, um, I mean, I'm not selling the, the kind of, you know, we're all born to, to exist in a world of tragedy and disaster, but that is also part of the reality, you know. I think any, to, to only focus on one aspect is, is a sense of denial in a way. But for John Mayberry, the best part of the shoot remains... Possibly, you know, the days where I had Daniel Craig stark naked were personally very good fun for me, but um, that's purely from lecherous old man point of view, really. <laughs>
4: love is the devil is a strand release this is steve pride thanks
3: for listening love is the devil can be streamed on amazon prime or rented to stream on youtube google play or voodoo although his interview was left on steve's cutting room floor we've heard love is the devil co-star daniel craig later went on to bigger and more mainstream films that same year We found ourselves sitting down with a former bratpacker Packer to hang some high art.
4: The film High Art, written and directed by Lisa Cholodinko, offers us a look at the psychology of dependency with a refreshing absence of the customary moralizing. It stars Australian actress Radha Mitchell as Sid and Ali Sheedy as her intriguing upstairs neighbor Lucy Berliner. As the film opens, 24-year-old Sid has what seems to be a dream job at a prestigious photography magazine. But despite a recent promotion, she's still stuck fetching the coffee. And at home with her longtime boyfriend, James, she's reached a comfortable but unexciting level of stability. Then one night, while soaking in the tub, Sid notices a leak in the ceiling.
12: Hey, James?
9: yeah
12: you know this crack in the ceiling yeah it's leaking
6: do you want me to try boris
7: i think so
4: and when she ventures upstairs to investigate a chance meeting suddenly takes her down a path she never expected
3: hi are you running a bath no are you? Uh, no, um, I'm sorry. I live right under you, and our, our ceiling's leaking. Did you call, um, Boris? Yeah, he's not answering.
12: Did you call a plumber?
3: Well, I didn't really want to, so, late. Like, you know, it's, it's really expensive. And it's probably just
9: your drains or pipe or something. I mean, you live right on top of us.
12: Yeah, I wish I knew what to tell you, but no one here has taken a bath recently.
4: Lucy, an emaciated, burnt-out photographer who years earlier decided to retire in mid-career, now lives with Greta, played by Patricia Clarkson, her heroin-addicted girlfriend, and spends most of her time drugged out and playing host to an assortment of hard-living friends. Sid is instantly fascinated with Lucy and her photography, and she finds herself being drawn into a world of heroin chic and lesbian passion. Radha Mitchell is an amazing find with a fresh-faced good looks that evoke a young Muriel Hemingway. We met in her hotel room overlooking the Sunset Strip and talked about her character, Sid.
9: Well, what I sort of saw in Sid when I read the script was this sort of opportunity to express how I was feeling kind of at the time, not necessarily lost, but sort of, you know, in in, in the deep end, I guess, of the swimming pool, because I was um, in a foreign country and, um, you know, know, ambitious, I guess, in my own way, trying to find um, work, acting. And Sid is, I felt similar in that she was, um, you know, ambitious and also willing to put herself in uncomfortable positions in order to achieve certain things, not only in her career, but also personally, like to extend herself.
4: The very first thing you notice when meeting Ally Sheedy is that in person she appears even thinner than the very thin Lucy she plays in high art. But when she speaks, it's the same Sheedy whom we all loved in films like War Games, The Breakfast Club, and St. Elmo's Fire. In high art, Lucy puts Sid in quite a few uncomfortable positions. Both actresses are heterosexual, and Sheedy shared this about filming the love scenes. Actually, I
12: felt I do not have the luxury, in this situation, to make this entire day about my own discomfort and my insecurity about what's going on here. Um, Because I have a 23-year-old actress here working with me, who has an incredibly emotionally difficult scene that she's going to have to get through. And so, what I focused on was, I wanted Rada to feel comfortable with me, and trust me, I wasn't going to do anything that was going to be scary or hard for her and she was the one who really had as far as I was concerned the hardest work to do that, that day in that scene. High Art
4: is an intense film with an elusive quality that's both charming and occasionally repulsive. When the credits rolled I was struck by how deeply I hated it. But days later unable to lose the images, the questions raised still echoing in my mind. I realized what an original, and powerful work this really is. High Art is an October film's release. Thanks for listening. This is Steve Pride.
3: High Art can be rented to stream on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, or Vudu. Don't go far. We'll be back after this quick break.
1: Keith Haring Mural Saved, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. On November 2, 2013, hundreds assembled at 22nd and Ellsworth Streets in Philadelphia to celebrate the restoration of Keith Haring's We the Youth mural. Haring and a group of teens from City Kids in New York created the mural in 1987 in celebration of the 200th anniversary of the US Constitution. Born in Reading, Pennsylvania, Haring moved to New York City where he thrived as an artist and social activist. The mural is his only collaborative public mural that is still intact at its original site. Sadly, he died from an AIDS-related illness just three years after creating it. The restoration was made possible by a $30,000 grant to Mural Arts from the Keith Herring Foundation to hire Kim Alsbrooks and a crew of artists to restore the mural using the most durable paints available. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson.
0: Hi, I'm Chaz Bono, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out loud and proud since
3: 1974. Welcome back. I'm Frances O'Brien, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. And now we switch gears from narrative film to documentary with Two The Story of Roman and Nero. The documentary.
4: The Story of Roman and Nairo is about iconic songwriter Desmond Child plus child plus child plus husband plus BFF surrogate. It's about the real new normal.
13: Desmond Child. Curtis Shaw Child.
12: Angela Whitaker, surrogate mother of those beautiful boys.
13: Did you have the hardest job?
12: I don't know. I've thought about that a lot as far as if I had the hardest job or not. And oftentimes I think I did not have the hardest job because I strictly, it was a really hard job at some times because it was quite an emotional journey for me. But once we transition into that next chapter, I really think that Desmond and Curtis then had the hardest jobs because they became these parents of these beautiful boys and the responsibility that comes with that on a day-to-day basis.
4: How did Angela end up carrying
0: your children? Angela and I had known each other in Nashville before through a common friend, and Desmond and I had gotten to know Deepak Chopra, and he had invited us to go to a How to Know God conference in Agra, India. And Angela had been and is still one of Deepak's primordial sound meditation teachers. So I knew that she was going to be there, and in the first moment of arriving at the hotel, Angela and her mother, Ruby, come in onto the scene.
12: Yeah, I mean they were literally the first familiar face that I saw there. So we got
0: to know each other very, very well.
12: And that's the first time I met Desmond and it was just a beautiful connection and we spent like every waking moment together, all of us, like on the buses, at meditation.
0: Saving
13: seats for one another, at Saving saving meditation mats.
12: (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) and tromping through all the temples barefoot together and it just became like junior high school all over again. It was amazing. But I literally at dinner the night that they were discussing about this next chapter in their life and wanting to create a family, I had a dream that night that I had their baby. It was almost like a vision. You know, my mother was the only one that I told about this dream at the time. But there was only one baby in that dream, as far as I know. I just saw myself really, really pregnant. So maybe I just wasn't getting it. And they were sending me a signpost very early on. But, yeah, it was pretty magical.
4: Tell me about the moment you found out you were carrying twins.
12: That was definitely a moment. We put two embryos in. There was actually three that were off the charts as far as quality. They grade these eggs. But our doctor said that if you get pregnant with three, we'd have to deselect one of them. So who wants to do that, right? So we opted for putting two in. I get a call a week or so later after I'd gone in for my test with the doctor, my blood test, and he says, you know, Your HCG levels are really high, which is the hormone that a woman starts producing when she's pregnant. And I go, and that is indicative of, and he said, a twin pregnancy. And I was literally driving down the 405 and had to pull off of the freeway because I was like, are you kidding me? Or I said, shut up or something like that. And he said, well, that wasn't very nice. You know, he was joking, of course. But, yeah, I was like, oh, my goodness. I am going to be a house. I mean, I signed up for one, and now there's two. And – but – It just all worked out beautifully, and actually now, I just... There's no other way I could envision it unfolding, and these two having each other and their amazing fathers. It's, you know, it was meant to be.
4: Angela has since moved to L.A., but you guys are a gay couple raising kids in a state that's tried several times to ban teachers from even saying the word gay.
0: We have found substantial support in Tennessee, in both our school communities and our sporting communities, because our kids play um,
13: Amongst a lot of Republicans. Sports. We have dinners with them, and they say, well, we're socially liberal. You know, and it's like, okay, but when it comes down to it, you're going to vote for somebody that's going to hurt our family. And I don't think they've made that connection well, yet. Well, even family members,
0: you know, we have family members on both sides that they make a decision that something else is more important than our rights. Our rights.
12: I was raised in the Mormon Church. You know I come from a that whole background and you know when they really got on board with that whole prop 8 thing even here in California that was like sending me through the roof. I wanted to put a big t-shirt on that said I carried twins for my two best gay friends and march on the temple you know and just it's just I don't know.
4: What did you learn about yourself in making this documentary? For me
0: it kind of called out the activist soul that I am and to standing up for truth and being able to try. I've always felt like I saw life as a certain way, and I just felt in living our lives every day, there couldn't be anything wrong with what we were doing and how the kids were turning out. So I just found that uh, I'm a lot stronger than I thought I was.
13: I found that I'm a lot fatter than I was <laughs> when I was really cute long ago, and that's the part that really bugs me. That's why I'm not in the movie as much, because uh, that was easy. Oh, I look too fat. Take that out.
12: <laughs> Desmond, you look amazing.
13: I don't. It's, it's like, it's
12: shocking. And your energy and what you had to share in your story. I'm vain.
13: Okay, I admit it. I'm vain.
4: <laughs> What's well, kept you together for 24 years?
13: The fact that I'm away a lot. <laughs> It was funny because I I was sitting with our Republican friends on the edge of the soccer field, and one of them had been celebrating their 16th year. I said, well, we've been together 24 years. And they said, how did you stay together so long? I said, well, I prefer thinking of Curtis like somebody I had just met. And that keeps it fresh, you know.
0: (laughs) Desmond's been a wonderful soulmate and teacher and lover. You know, we've learned so much from each other. He's taught me how to communicate. But it hasn't been all peaches and cream. We've had our rocky moments, and um, we've made it through. And just having these boys, for me and for us, is really a testament of our commitment to one another and to being together and um, to stay together.
4: In our new normal, terms like mom and dad are not about gender, but roles. So Curtis, is your role more the mom?
0: I do see myself kind of as a traditional daddy mom because I I love to bake and that's just how I've always been. I kind of oversee the house. I oversee all of their activities, brushing of teeth, tucking in at night. I um, am the one who's really with them more than Desmond because he does have a travel schedule that takes him away. And I see myself as the softer kind of emotional center for them, even though when they do things that get me upset, I'm not so soft. And he's an amazing
12: I, I, mother. Can I jump in here? <laughs> well, and
0: just my experience in preschool and school, I just, you know, that's what moms do. We're all kind of doing the same thing. And I'm, you know, I'm sitting there. I have more to talk to the moms at school than anybody else. And it's not even that. We have some friends in Nashville who the mother is a songwriter, Victoria Shaw, a very successful songwriter. And her husband, Bob Lochner, is like the straight version of me. And he's in charge of the kids and he's in charge of the meals and taking the kids from place to place. So I've seen the practical application of parenthood in the world is you can't really put a stereotype to it. There's no Leave it to Beaver, family. Everybody has differences.
12: Towards the end, I was starting to get a little concerned because I was like, wow, who is going to be their mother? My mother's my best friend. And I have this meltdown in the hospital. And I remember that night thinking, oh my gosh, they're not going to have a mother. Where's their mother? And then I started going, that's just this role. You don't have to be a woman to be a mother. It's a role that you play. And I've witnessed Curtis with the boys, and I don't know a better mother than him.
4: Desmond, until I saw the documentary, I had no idea that so many of my favorite songs were written by the same person, much less that he was a gay man.
13: (laughs) It's true. It's kind of ironic that I've written some of the most macho, chauvinistic songs on earth and uh, worked with tough bands like Kiss and Aerosmith, Bon Jovi. But um, Joan Jett. (laughs) True. And so it's kind of ironic. But the thing is that I experienced the glass ceiling as a producer, because even though bands were happy to co-write with me because we're on the equal level, once you're the producer, you actually lord over them. And so many, especially the, the, the male bands they didn't like that or didn't want that and also maybe the A&R people who were hiring the producers and the executives who were mainly straight also couldn't envision me in that position so they always gave me weirdos like Alice Cooper and Cher and Joan Jett and Meat Loaf to work with because that was okay because they were kind of androgynous or something like that And so I've only produced very few rock bands, even though I've co-written with many.
0: But you really had huge success with Ricky Martin and Livin' La Vida Loca.
13: That's what I said, weirdos like Ricky Martin. (laughs) (laughs) Who's now an out gay man himself. I produced his last record, Mas, and we moved in at his second home, which is on the beach. And he had a home, which is on the bay, a a few miles away. And we were there seven months And we set up studios downstairs, and then Curtis and I and the boys lived upstairs, sort of a paw and paw operation. And that whole process, we talked a lot. I remember sitting at the very beginning, and he and I, although we had made a lot of music before, like Livin' La Vida Loca, The Cup of Life, She Bangs, Shakey Bon Bon, we had never, ever discussed his personal life. Even though he knew I, I was openly gay and all that, he never felt comfortable. He hadn't come out to his family To his mother, I mean, he was very concerned about their feelings. And after that Barbara Walters kind of nailed him to the wall, he pulled back for many years and kind of went into his shell. And so when I went to start talking to him about getting together again and making this new album, he sat down and he said, how do you think I should come out? And I was like, what? And I instantly said, you should come out on Oprah.
0: But you also were songwriting at the time, and you hadn't really been songwriting with him, so he was participating in the songwriting of that album, and you crafted songs that were personal to him and really talking about his story, and so he was singing a song that you actually had written, not with him, but... um,
13: I remember writing a song and recording a song called Basta Ya with him, which means enough, and it really is his full declaration asserting the fact that he's going to be who he is and he's not going to go back to lying. And I remember that for the first time he brought his mother to the studio and sat down and played it for her and she was in tears. And I remember her looking at him and she said in the tenderest way, oh, you, you must have suffered so much. And there wasn't a superstar and a situation. It was like a mother and her son.
4: Now he has sons.
13: Yes, he's such a copycat, he had twin sons. <laughs> <laughs> and our boys love his boys, Matteo
0: and Valentino.
13: Yeah, they're, they're friends and they play. When, we, when we're in New York City, they play in, in Central Park together.
4: There was a great moment in the documentary where you tell your father that you are having kids.
13: My father was a very uh, charming, intelligent man. He had known that I was gay for a long time and knew Curtis and loved him and all of that. And I came to him and told him that we were going to have children. And he looked at me with this bewildered stare and said, what, you can have children? And he actually thought that gay men didn't have enough testosterone to be heterosexual. So thus, we were infertile. And that's why we didn't have children. I mean, it's a crazy logic, but it drives home the point that um, the opposition to gay marriage always says, well, marriage was created for procreation. And nobody's actually saying gay people aren't infertile. They can and they do procreate like crazy. So end of that discussion. Now, why don't you think we should be married? Shouldn't our children have the same rights that children of married parents have?
0: That's part of what motivates Desmond and I in putting our family out there so much in a very personal way. Because um, our kids, you know, for the most part, they're on board, but every once in a while we have some good days and bad days. And That's every family. Every family. That but that. for the most part, we're trying to educate them that you have to stand up for yourselves and for rights
4: and, and this
13: is how we're doing it with this film.
4: Okay, kids, it's your turn. First, tell me who's who and how old you are.
2: I'm Roman. I'm Nero. We're 11. 11.
4: And who's the smartest? Me.
2: Probably him.
4: Tell me about your dads.
2: Well, one of our dad has a Cuban mother. The other one, he's just... He's a pitiful hillbilly. Yeah.
4: <laughs> we have all things
0: in our families. They have the crazy Cubans on one side and... uh The hillbillies hillbillies on the
4: other. (laughs) What a great mix. So which dad do you go to if you want to get away with something?
2: Daddy. Desmond.
13: Yeah, because I'm away a lot, so I can never say no to anything they want.
0: And they say, Papa, you're so mean, because I'm the
4: disciplinarian. What's it like to have two dads?
2: Kind of normal. Kind of normal, because we haven't been in any other family, so (laughs) we don't know how to say how it's different.
4: What does the word gay mean to you?
2: when two people of the same gender love each
10: other.
4: What do you hope audiences who see the documentary will learn about you?
2: That we're just like any other family. But a little more fabulous. (laughs) Right, Papa?
4: This has been a conversation with Desmond Child, Curtis Shaw, Angela Whitaker, Roman Shaw Child, and Nairo Shaw Child. To find out when, two, the story of Roman and Nairo will be at a theater near you. Check out the official website at 2, that's T-W-O, 2thedocumentary.com. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening.
3: The Story of Roman and Nero is available to stream on Amazon Prime. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Frances O'Brien. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you're interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email public@prideonscreen.com, And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. And you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. I'm Frances O'Brien in Los Angeles. Please look at my website, relieveyourmind.com. Hope you're having a happy new year and kept your resolutions within reach. All I want for 2022 is the absolution of imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist heteropatriarchy. What about you?
1: I'm beautiful in my way, because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby.